And Lord, what a vision you are. A vision that gets us up each day. That allows us to go on being in a way that brings you glory. And Lord, while we're waking or sleeping, you are our light. And we look forward to the day when we're with you in glory, where there be no need of the sun and no need of the moon. The light of your presence will be our life and our light. And we look for that day. It's all our hearts. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. When I was in the Air Force, Barbara and I conducted a, a, a great many marriage retreats. And we were always on the lookout for ideas, for activities for couples to do uh, that might bring them closer together. And so one uh, time on our own, we went on what's, uh, a, what's called an MWR uh, trip, morale uh, trip, and it was uh, canoeing on the Arkansas River. So off we went, and we learned something uh, that day, that canoeing all day with another person will invariably lead to character revelation. <laughs> so uh, there were a number of couples along with us. It wasn't a marriage retreat, but it certainly could have been. And uh, there were a lot of words flying back and forth. And in one canoe in particular, those words got fairly heated. And uh, the wife began to demand that her husband drop her off on shore and that she was walking home. Well, he decided not to do that. And so she decided to get out of the canoe, which nearly swamped the canoe. And as a matter of swimming and walking, she was able to get uh, to the shore uh, the truth is, not everybody does well in a canoe together. So, hmm, Barb and I thought, if a couple who was dating could enjoy a canoe trip together, they were meant for each other. <laughs> and if we could figure out a way to get married couples to enjoy a canoe trip together, why, that would help their marriage as well. I mean, and the reason for this is simple. It's being in a canoe on a flowing river demands, as long as you're with another person, that you work together. It requires cooperation. It requires coordination. It requires listening because things happen sometimes quickly. And what it takes to be Successful in life and successful in the church is the same thing that it takes to be successful in a canoe, doing our part, working together. Now, as Paul finishes his letter to the Thessalonians, we see in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, he's going to remind us that in life and in church, like in the canoe, we need to work together. We need to stay in step. We need to keep in time with one another. Oh, by the way, wasn't that beautiful? Be thou my vision. What a wonderful, 
what a wonderful rendition that was. But sadly, sometimes for us, we may be tempted to sit back and coast. Or we may allow someone else to do the hard work. Or worse yet, we, we may want to go in different directions. So there are even some who choose to paddle backwards. Uh, they don't know what a J-stroke is. They need to learn. But Paul tells us that we have the responsibility to correct those who are coasting and not working on their part. So he begins here in verse 6. Now we command you, listen to this, we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I I just want to ask you, as we begin this message, how many times... Have you been commanded in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to do something in the Bible? This is not that common. And I I find it absolutely uh, fascinating because this is more important than it may first seem. And yet, it seems so ungracious. Uh, I mean, and, and not what we would think a believer's reaction should be. We're instructed everywhere in the Word of God to share with people, to help in their needs, to feed, to shelter, to clothe. And it seems contradiction that Paul would say, keep away from them, let them not eat. I mean, this form of ostracism, of of snubbing, of, of shunning, is a very painful penalty, and it seems severe. And he spent a long time talking about it, which is a little bit baffling in itself. He talked about this almost as long as he talked in the same letter about the Lord's uh, return. It's an amazing thing. Now, so why did he do that? What was happening here? It may be helpful for us to go all the way back to the beginning. And remember that, Before the fall, God ordained work. Now, that may be disappointing for some, because what that means is if it was pre-fall, then post-fall, after redemption and reconciliation, we're going to have to work. (laughs) But it will not be, oh, by the way, by the sweat of our brow... And it will not be a stubborn earth that we work. Those are different stories. I mean, Adam didn't just lay around in the garden. He was commanded to till the garden, to keep the garden. Not only that, he had to name all uh, the animals. Now, naming is difficult, and everyone in here has already been named. 
But just think about just remembering uh, everyone's name in the building. And some would struggle with that, and yet Adam ain't named and remembered all of the animals. He had work to do. God gave man a beautiful earth filled with bountiful goodness and resources, some of which we don't even know what is there yet. We're still discovering new things. In Exodus 20, 9 and 10, we're told, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Work, then, as we see pre-fall and in the Ten Commandments post-fall, it's part of the Imago Dei. God is a worker, and therefore we work. He has given us abilities and resources and possibilities that need to be put to work. We need to notice a couple of things here, though, that goes back to one of my first reflections about the passage. The passage does not read, if any cannot work, but if any will not work. Words are important. The Holy Spirit had a greater vocabulary than any of us or anyone ever. The words that are selected are selected because they're important. People who cannot work because of disability or there is no work are not part of this discussion. It's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about those who have the ability and the capacity to work but refuse to do so. This is about a matter of the will, not a matter of capability. The interesting thing here, too, I mean, Paul's not uh, messing around. This word command is exactly the same word that a Roman military officer would use. This is a command. This was an order. We may not like the order, but it's an order that we are given by the Apostle Paul. Not only is it a command, but this command is in the name, and it just doesn't say in the name of Jesus, or in the name of the Lord, or in the name of Christ. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the full title. Something's happening here. It's the same word that would be used to order any military to stay away from these people. He does something else, too. We're commanded to stay away, to keep away. That's a very interesting uh, word. As you know, I, I, I love words and what's behind them. But this is a word that was used when you would furl the, the sails of a ship. So you can furl them and you can unfurl them. Now, I'm not a Navy guy. Navy guys know what that means. But I am an old Army guy. And back in 1973, I was part of the 172nd Infantry, Light Infantry. It was Light Infantry Brigade back then. It changed later. Uh, and as an Air Force chaplain stationed in Italy, uh, Barbara and I were able to go to their last event, the 172nd who had since moved from Fairbanks, Alaska, to where I was, up to Grafenwehr in Germany, and they furled the flag. 
What that means is instead of it catching the full wind and doing its job, they rolled it up and put it in a case and they inactivated it. In the same way, that's what Paul is saying. Inactivate, abstain, avoid believers who are idle. And again, Paul has got... He's got centurions on the brain here because this word idle doesn't mean maybe exactly what we think it means in English. We've seen this word before. We've talked about this word before. What it means is out of step. These are believers who were out of step with what they have seen. And the order essentially is for us to get them back into step. It's a disorderly, out of step, and idle. Now, Proverbs has a lot to say about these. When I was in seminary, I found it just so funny for me to reflect on the sluggard. How many of you reflected on the sluggard? I mean, even the word itself, sluggard. I mean, it just slows you down right there, sluggard. In Proverbs 10.26, it says, uh, As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. You know, uh, there are many sluggard verses. Uh, I'll only give you one more. Uh, 26.14, As the door turns upon its hinges, so the sluggard turns in his bed. you got to love this. Of, of course, the aim, though... Of Paul is is very important here. It goes back to Romans sixteen seventeen. It's a pure echo of this. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. What he's doing is is establishing boundaries for our protection but also for their restoration. And what are we to do instead? Instead, we're to follow the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And when Paul described this pattern, never receiving food from anybody, he never, they, they toiled. The word there that's used in the original language is a fascinating word. We work to, the, where it said they toiled night and day, Literally, what that's saying is we work to the point of pain in order for none of you to have to uh, do this. Now, by doing that, do not understand wrongly what he is saying. He is not saying in any way that no one should ever accept help from the church. So what was he saying? He was saying that those who have ability and opportunity to work, but choose not to, should receive nothing from the church. It's a very practical matter. It's a matter of if there's ability but no willingness, then we will not support that. Paul is not saying that he or others should never accept help. Far from it. I mean, one of the great hallmarks of the church is generosity the ability and the willingness to help others in 
need. And we've already talked about these things in other messages. But as a church, we have a responsibility to care for people with a needs-based care. It's a duty. It's something that God wants us to do. It was very particular in Paul's case. He's coming to a place where they have no, they have no analogy to work with. And he's giving them a way of thinking and their immature state as they mature. I mean, you know, for us, it may be as simple as giving someone a ride or making a meal, doing repairs on their home or giving them money to carry through. Whatever it might be, we have a responsibility to help those in need. The people that Paul uh, were hammering on weren't pulling their weight. And this is the problem, right? It's always the problem. It's as evident uh, as uh, the nose on our face. If everyone chooses not to work and rely on the church to take care of them, the church will not have the resources to care for anyone. It couldn't be clearer. And, And yet Paul goes on because the idleness is not idleness in itself. Being out of step isn't in isolation. He goes on in 11 and 12. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and to work to earn their own living. The reason that Paul is taking this drastic action, let them not eat, let them starve if they're not really willing to work is to prevent something worse. And that's what I referred to earlier, alluded to in in Romans, that people who will not work become busy bodies. That is, meddlers. That is, people who concern themselves with other people's affairs. Instead of how I grew up, probably many of you did too, mind your own backyard. In other words, take care of your business. Uh, You know what, if the scripture says that there are enough troubles of today for us to worry with, not to worry about tomorrow, how do we take on other people's? Just leave it alone. I mean, obviously there's times and and places, but just as a general uh, philosophy. Some people try to get involved in things that they have no business getting involved with. This is what Paul was talking about. Those are the people who go around starting divisions and, and, and controversy and stirring up difficulty and trouble. Because the people who weren't pulling their weight, the people who weren't keeping in step, the people who weren't keeping in time, the people who weren't rowing along with you, weren't sitting idly at home. I just am convinced that in many ways, to really go way out there with this, that often people who engage in criminal activity in order not to work end up working harder than they would have if they had just got a job. In other words, these people, they're not simply just idle. They're making themselves busy with other people's business. And that's a destructive 
way of being. And this should be a solemn warning to each one of us. He goes on to say, as for you brothers, that should be a solemn warning, but this as well. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Warn him as a uh, brother. Here's the thing that we have to see. In the church, we have a responsibility, a duty, a joy, really, to help one another. And all of us in this room have been helped. It may not have been with a you know, financial donation. It may have been a word of encouragement. It may have been a letter, a note. It may have been a ride, a phone call, whatever it may have been. We've all, we've all been helped and we have a responsibility to do that. That duty to do that and a joy to do that. But at the same time, we have a responsibility, a duty, feels like less of a joy, but to correct each other, provided that we are in the space to do that. In other words, you do not cross three lanes in order to correct someone in the church. Someone else is already in their lane, and they need to do that. Uh, church discipline, which is what he's talking about here, he didn't use that phrase, I am, but it's, it's rarely held to these days because most people, honestly, they see it as, as hard-hearted, they see it as mean-spirited, they see it as unloving, and sometimes, in fact, it is carried out that way, but that's not what the Bible tells us should happen. As unpleasant as that business is, Scripture does not allow us to neglect it. It's not that we go around looking for people to correct, but when it comes to us, when it becomes our responsibility, not making it our responsibility, it's obvious when it is, then we should make the correction and it's a fascinating thing that Paul says here. The goal of the withdrawing of the fellowship from these individuals, they're believers, yeah, you keep that in mind, was that they may feel ashamed. When was the last time you heard that from the pulpit? I want you to go out and make someone feel ashamed. It's not the kind of thing that you hear very much. But at the same time, do not treat that person as an enemy, but as a brother. Now, in America, at least, we've almost entirely lost the notion of shame. We don't even know. We don't even know what it is. I mean, the word itself is distasteful. Uh, but what does it mean? What is Paul uh, commanding others to do? I mean, today the only time that we hear that context is the same way that, that Jeremiah said it, where he said, Jeremiah said, are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, 
They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. I mean, that's the only way we hear it. We don't hear it as eloquently as that. We hear, have they no shame? They're shameless. What does that, even, what does that mean, shameless? Do we want people to have shame? Do you know, is that the something that's desired? Let me tell you what the word means here. The word means to turn on oneself. Now that's a, an, interesting, an interesting look because shame goes much deeper than guilt. And that's true, it does. Shame is something about who you are as opposed to about what you've done. But you have to understand is that what this means is shame is the feeling, is the feeling that you should have when you violate something that you believe at the core. You should feel that way. Now, I'm not talking about the shame that gets piled on to people because there are a lot of people out there that will tell you what you should be ashamed about. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is these people knew they were doing wrong, but they did it anyway. Paul wanted them to be reminded so that they were being in a way that they knew they should not be. His ultimate goal was not to make people feel bad. That's not what his goal was. His goal was to remind them of the Holy Spirit's presence in their heart. And the Holy Spirit's presence is to do a number of things. He's to comfort, but he's also to what? To convict. The Holy Spirit, just listen to that and you'll realize when you're doing wrong. We don't need, if we are in tune with the Holy Spirit of God, you do not need a written law. You will do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And you know when you're not. Paul was simply wanting those people who were doing the correcting to remind them that they were not walking in the right direction. The goal then of shame was not harm, but repentance. It was to bring about this repentance. I'm in this class. It's a, a addictions and compulsions. And one of the things that I had to do was attend two AA meetings, two Al-Anon meetings, and two Narcotics Anonymous meetings. I cannot tell you, and some of you may have experienced this, so you may know what I'm talking about. I cannot tell you when someone falls and comes back, how they are embraced wholly, completely, and openly. And I said to myself, I would love to see more of that in the church. I would love to see that kind of, more of that kind of acceptance in the church where when we fall, when we make a mistake, when we get corrected, and then we repent and we're restored, we're not held on a shelf for five years. We're welcome back in. 
into the heart, into the fellowship. We should always use the least amount of pressure to achieve the desired outcome. Uh, again, in the, the, the military, we would refer to this as you shouldn't kill a mosquito with an atomic bomb. You know, you use appropriate measures. And Paul's concluding words, so we can wrap up here, are so important. Uh, that we, we have to take note of them. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. That's a, when you study that, that's an extraordinary uh, sentence. Uh, the Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. That is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So Paul concludes this book with a simple prayer that God would grant peace to you at all times and in every way. I mean, Paul understood the church was under attack. Paul knew what that meant to be in a, a difficult situation. So he prayed that God would strengthen them and give them peace even in the midst of whatever the terrible circumstance uh, was and of course the question that we ask is how is it possible to have peace in the middle of conflict how is it possible to have peace when the uh, the world is crashing in around you well the bottom line of this and I don't mean to I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to anybody else who listens so I'm it's this is not a it's not a swat it comes from trusting God more than your circumstances. When we look at our circumstances, when you look at your circumstances, I, I, guarantee, I guarantee you when you look at your circumstances, your peace will begin to erode. It will begin to disintegrate. But when you look at God, when, you, when your eyes are focused on Him, your peace will be restored. God is still in control. God is in control. When we really believe that, we can have peace, even when things are not peaceful. So we've covered a lot of ground this morning, so just a few takeaways. First, we need to ensure that the work that we're engaged in, and the, the, the older I get, the more precious this becomes to me. I've always thought this way, but, uh, but uh, I, can you feel this way even more? I don't know. And that is, make sure that what you're doing is worth the exchange. It's worth your life, because that's what you're given for it. Take time and think about what you spend your time and energy on. If it's not something that you feel is glorifying God and advancing his kingdom, then realign, realign as you're able your priorities. Second, keep doing what's right, even if it doesn't seem like it. I mean, that's part of, the, part of that. You can't separate that from the Paul's telling to correct these idle uh, people was you keep doing right, even if you see them, uh, perhaps they're successful. It's, it's not much different from what David said. Why? Why? Why do the wicked prosper? I would often 
hear Howard Hendricks say, never let a wrong motive keep you from doing the right thing. In other words, it's always right to do the right thing. Don't be weary in doing the right thing. Just keep doing it. And it is frustrating when you see people not pulling their weight. Third, we have a responsibility to care for each other. Family. That's the way we need to think. Our thought process is not just some great, you know, metaphor in the sky, family. We are family. We need to care for one another as family. And, and that's an important thing, both in terms of meeting practical needs, but also in terms of doing whatever we can as a community to keep people moving along the path that glorifies God. I mean, that's what we have here. It says, note that, note that, that man, note that one. And take action based on that. This is a tough thing, but don't carry it too far. He says, the person's not an, not an enemy. Don't make them feel like an enemy. Fourth, understand the role of shame. Now, I, I, I admit, in today's world, that's a very strange notion. But essentially, what I want you to take away from this, in terms of shame as opposed to guilt, is we know through the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are walking in a way, we are being in a way that God does not want. Well, okay, repent. Another good military command about face. Stop going the way you're going and go the other way. It's not, it's not, it's hard to do. It's not hard to, to say. Finally, trust in God above all else. There's one takeaway from this message that I would like you to keep with you is no matter what the situation that you face, no matter what the struggle is, no matter what the dark horizon you may see in the, the distance, trust God, not the circumstances. Trust the God of the universe, the creator God. Think about his creation. Look up at the stars at night if you need encouragement. If God can make and spread these stars out and count them and have them maneuver in such a way that at the birth of Christ or at his return, they're perfectly in alignment with what he said they would be, he can take care of your business. Years before Barbara and I saw uh, the utility in canoeing as a, for couples, uh, a friend of mine up in Alaska, Jamil, and I, we were canoeing down one of the tributaries of the, the Tanana River near Fairbanks, Alaska. We were having a great time. It was pretty speedy, though, and as we rounded a corner, there was a, a sweeper that was halfway across the river which we could not avoid. It just wasn't. A sweeper is where a, either a branch or a tree or something has, has fallen across. And every year, people drown because it pulls you right under. And we did a lot of quick talking about how we were going to do this because the canoe was pulled under in short order. But thankfully, the sweeper was strong enough to where as we approached it, we were both of us able to kind of lay out on top of it and then crawl over 
the top of it, we were able to even get the canoe on the other side. So instead of a tragedy, it's just another, it's just another story that I tell. What's the point? The point is this. Sometimes riding in a canoe together, uh, it's not just an inconvenience. It's not just a hassle. It's not just, oh, we want to go two different directions. Sometimes, sometimes it can be much more serious. And I, ho- I hope that this week that you remember that we're all in this together. We're in a canoe. It's a nice big canoe, but we're in a canoe. And if we're all pulling our weight, and if we're all paddling, and if we're all in step and in time with each other, that we'll have a great time. You'll have a great time. And the way we navigate these waters is to fix our eyes on Jesus and row together. Father, we we are so desirous of doing what you want us to do here, but sometimes it's sometimes it's difficult. It's it's hard to know which direction to go. We're thankful that we have your word. We're thankful that we have your spirit. But Lord, even when we don't know which way to go, we can always cooperate. We can always listen intently. We can always be merciful and gracious and loving. And when we have to be firm, we're firm. But in all these things, we pray your guidance, your will, your love. And we pray that in the things that we do, in our lives, in the lives of the church, that we would bring you the glory due your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.